Metallica didn't release a self-titled album until its fifth release. The album, commonly referred to as the Black Album, is the biggest selling album of any genre in the last 30 years and was originally released 30 years ago on August 12, 1991. Metallica was arguably the biggest underground band in the world when they set upon making the follow-up to 1988's And Justice For All. But the creative and commercial leap they made with their 1991 self-titled LP, better known as the Black Album, is still pretty crazy even in retrospect. Justice's sprawling, intricate, multi-part political epics were focused into concise, personal, heavy pop songs. James Hetfield actually started legitimately singing, not just yelling, and the production popped, especially compared to its predecessors, virtually baseless mix, making songs like Sad But True and lead single Enter Sandman seem like they were exploding through speakers and headphones. At the time, as huge as this band is now, and as huge as they became after the Black Album, they were underdogs. These are the outsiders. These are the guys, for four albums, only ten stations ever played their music in America. They didn't make a video until almost the end of their fourth album's run. They're a garage band who was supposed to tour for the rest of their life, and that was it. They were a band that was developing, irregardless of their arena status, very organically on press and metal radio. Nobody else gave a rat's ass about Metallica. They were not planned to be the biggest rock band in the world. Yet somehow they became the biggest rock band in the world. Now I mentioned that they weren't happy with the production on And Justice For All. To me, says James Hetfield, And Justice For All album, it sounds horrible, awful, can't effing stand it. That was our fancy stage, showing off too much. We knew we had to move on, and the Black album was the opposite. So when me and Lars got back together after a short break, I said, we got to really try and write some shorter, to the point songs. Here's Lars on the songwriting. The difference this time is that instead of taking, you know, like five riffs and cramming them all into one song, now most of the songs only really have like one or two riffs, and so it's a little more, just kind of sticks more to one thing. And more from James Hetfield on the songwriting. I think after listening to the Justice album, it was pretty apparent that we needed some kind of guidance. <laughs> I mean, I'm not knocking it. It was right at the time, and it felt good. And But you can absolutely tell who was producing, mixing the thing, you know. And the drums are really loud, and the guitars are really loud. So that would be me and Lars. That's awesome. James Hetfield wasn't alone in feeling like Metallica had gone too far off into the proggy deep end with justice. Kirk Hammett told Rolling Stone in 1991, we realized that the general consensus was that the songs were too long. Everyone in the crowd would have these long faces, and I'd think, God damn, they're not enjoying it as much as we are. I remember getting off stage one night after playing Justice, and one of us saying, that is the last time we ever play that song. Now, at the time of the Black Album's recording, the band's songs were written mainly by James Hetfield. 
Hetfield and Lars Ulrich, with Hetfield the lyricist. They frequently composed together at Ulrich's house in Berkeley, California. Several song ideas and concepts were conceived by other members of the band, Kirk Hammett and bassist Jason Newstead. For instance, Newstead wrote the main riff of My Friend of Misery, which was originally intended to be an instrumental, one of which had been included on each previous Metallica album. The songs were written in two months in mid-1990, and the ideas for some of them originated during the Damaged Justice Tour. Then it was time to hire a producer, and monster producer Bob Rock, born and raised in Winnipeg until he was 12, was the man. So why Rock? Here's Lars. He basically sat down and was like so brutally honest with us. You know, he sat down and said, I've seen you guys play a bunch of times live, and I've listened to your records, and um, you guys have not captured what you do live on a record yet. And we're like, excuse me? Uh, who the fuck are you? <laughs> but he instantly had vision on where these things could go, and that was... It was inspiring to me, you know. It wasn't just Lars and I trying to sort out what should happen and argue and this and that. We had a fifth member that was going to help us get what we wanted. So those were all pluses, but how did Bob Rock come onto the band's radar in the first place? Here's Lars again. We'd not really been too happy with any of the mixes on the last three albums, and we were sitting there when we started writing the songs last summer, you know, who should we get to mix this record? Because we thought, you know, we'd made the last three albums with Fleming Rasmussen, and we didn't see any reason why we shouldn't make this one with him. So we're sitting there talking about who we should get to mix it, and um, we thought one of the best-sounding records for the last couple of years was the Motley Crue album that he made, Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> that he had the ability to, to make like the best Motley Crue album and the Bon Jovi album that he was involved with was like the best Bon Jovi album. It's like he seemed to be able to just make, you know, bring out the best in whatever bands he was working with. We had our manager call him up and say, you know, are you interested in mixing this record? And he said, yeah, but I'd also really like to produce it if they're interested. Yeah, they approached me to mix and I said that, uh, sure, but I'd like to work with them through the whole album if they were into it. And I think the new guys kind of phoned back and said, well, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> like I told well, you, we were like, he wants maybe, to, and then. Peter Cullen said, he wants to produce you too. I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> we're Metallica, nobody produces us. <laughs> nobody tells us what to do. And then after a while, like, kind of got the guard down a little bit and said, well, maybe we should go hang with this guy a little bit. Apart from the fact that the band and Bob Rock would have real difficulty working with each other, if you've ever seen the documentary A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, you know that the making of the Black Album was an intense, contentious affair. Bob Rock told Rolling Stone, I used to call James Dr. No. Whenever I was about to make a suggestion that seemed even a little off the wall, he'd say no before I'd even finish the first sentence. Things were so tense during the recording sessions that Bob Rock told the guys when we were done I'd never work with them again, and they felt the same way about me. Of course, things worked out a little bit differently, as we know. In October of 1990, Metallica began recording at one-on-one recording studios in Los Angeles and then also at Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver for about a week. In June of 1991, a demo of Holier Than Thou was recorded. Hetfield stated about the recording, what we really wanted was a live feel. In the past, Lars and I constructed the rhythm parts without Kirk and Jason. This time I wanted to try playing as a band unit in the studio. It lightens things up and you get more of a vibe. That was also part of Bob Rock's influence. It was his first time, of course, producing a Metallica album, and he had the band make the album in different ways, recording the songs collaboratively rather than individually in separate locations. Rock was also the one who suggested recording the tracks live, put that thought into James Hetfield's head, 
and also doing the vocals a different way. Here's James. Bob's really cool to work with vocally. Before, it's always I've doubled all my vocals, so I didn't really have room to kind of just go nuts on this part, or you know, because I'd always have to double it. It'd have to be precise. So this time we're going for more of a raw kind of. I'll just go six different tracks, six different passes. You know, get nuttier here. He'll you know go up here, try this part, and it's it's really easy and nice. <laughs> Some odds and ends on some of the songs on the album. Enter Sandman was originally about crib death. James Hetfield said in 2007, quote, You know, Baby Suddenly Dies, the Sandman killed it. The lyrics were so grim, including the line, Disrupt the perfect family instead of off to Never Neverland, that Bob Rock and Lars Ulrich stepped in. James says, I can remember when I wrote the lyrics to Enter Sandman, Bob Rock and Lars came to me and said, These aren't as good as they could be. That pissed me off so much. I was like, F you, I'm the writer here. That was the first challenge from somebody else, and it made me work harder. Also, the guitar solo on Edder Sandman was inspired in part by a sample track on an Ice-T album. Kirk Hammett told Guitar World, I think the time has come to reveal where I actually got the guitar lick before the breakdown in Edder Sandman. It's from Magic Man by Hart, but I didn't get it from Hart's version. I got it from a cut off Ice-T's Power album where he sampled it. I heard that and I thought, I have got to steal this. I have got to snake this. Incidentally, Bob Rock may have liked the song, but he didn't hear a single in the song, surprisingly enough, because it was the lead single, and it is so strong. Here's David Frick from Rolling Stone on Enter Sandman. It's an amazing lick, and that is exactly the kind of thing that blew the doors wide open. You know, it was great classic rock, but it was smart. It had like a futurist quality to it. It wasn't like anything that you heard on old heavy metal records. It wasn't like anything on the radio. And the one thing about that riff on the radio, it just blew out the speakers. You know, it just announced itself. Here we are, like it or lump it. Regarding Sad But True, when Bob Rock heard the demo, he thought it was the cashmere of the 90s, referencing the Led Zeppelin song. He told Guitar World, the riff was astounding. Rhythmically, I could tell it had the potential to be absolutely crushing. Then, while in pre-production, Rock noticed that all the songs the band had brought in, including Sad But True, were in the key of E. Rock said, I brought this to the band's attention, and they said, well, isn't E the lowest note? So I told them that on Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, which I produced, and Metallica loved, the band had tuned down to a D. Metallica then tuned down to D, and that's when the riff really became huge. It was this force that you just couldn't stop no matter what. On the song Nothing Else Matters, James Hetfield talks about how it came about and how it wasn't even supposed to be a Metallica song or even a song that anybody else heard. The main kind of pattern to Nothing Else Matters was more or less just a flute, just sitting around, I think, talking on the phone while I had the guitar sitting on me. And I was talking and just started hitting this, these four strings in this certain way. And because they were all open strings, you know, da 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 And then it kind of, I gotta go, you know? <laughs> then I started coming up and doing little pull-offs here and there and just went on from there. Nothing else matters lyrically was, you know, being on the road for a long time and, you know, missing your chick at home, really, essentially, and uh, kind of the distance and all the bond and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, girlfriends come and go. And uh, the song still means something, though, to other people. It's a, it's a, a brotherhood bond, you know, it, it means something to the four of us together. I had really no intention of it being a Metallica song. It was a song for me and how I felt, and it was really too personal for the band, you know. I didn't think they'd like it, first of all, and boy, maybe this isn't really Metallica material, you know. This is just me writing for me. But I guess Lars or someone had heard it, and hey, that's good. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. <laughs> 
uh, now what do I do? And nothing else matters. I was always really into Brian May and his orchestration on the guitar, single note, and the three-part harmonies moving around. And that's what I had done with Nothing Else Matters. So that partly inspired by Queen and James Hetfield's vocals on The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters actually inspired by Chris Isaac. Hetfield's singing took this huge step forward on the Black Album evolving from that primal thrash metal yell to a much more nuanced and wide-ranging rock vocal. When making that leap, James did look to Chris Isaac and particularly Isaac's song Wicked Game, which was a massive early 90s hit. Bob Rock said, quote, Hetfield played me a Chris Isaac record, and he said, on Nothing Else Matters in the Unforgiven, I want to actually sing. How do you sing like this? And Rock said, I will get you a great vocal sound so you don't have to double your vocals. What you hear in Chris Isaac's voice is the nuances when he sings. He isn't doubled. He's actually performing. You perform. So we set it up so he was comfortable and had that great vocal sound, and then he sang. Every day he got better and he got comfortable with it, and he became a great singer. Speaking of The Unforgiven, here's Lars on that song. We'd written these other ballady type songs like Fade to Black and Welcome Home Sanitarium and stuff before, which was always about the kind of melodic verse and then the heavy chorus. And I really thought it'd be cool to try and reverse that and write a song where those dynamics were changed around. On the song of Wolf and Man, Bob Rock thought the lyrics were silly. He said, I'll be honest, at first I thought it was silly to write about a wolf. I was like, oh great, a song about a wolf. What are you getting at? May as well write about pyramids or something. When metal goes in those kinds of areas, I lose the plot. But rock eventually came around. Quote, then as we got more into James's lyrics, I realized that the song wasn't silly, that there was an earthiness to it. We talked about making the song go through a transformation, kind of reflecting the lyrics. It took a while. I'm not sure if we got there fully, but we got there most of the way. When it was released, Metallica's Black Album was met with widespread acclaim. In Entertainment Weekly, David Brown called it, quote, rock's preeminent speed metal cyclone and said Metallica may have invented a new genre, progressive thrash. In his review for Spin, Alec Foge found the music's harmonies vividly performed and said that Metallica showcased their newfound versatility on songs such as The Unforgiven and Holier Than Thou. Robert Palmer, writing in Rolling Stone, said that several songs sound like hard rock classics and that, apart from Don't Tread on Me, Metallica is an exemplary album of mature but still kick-ass rock and roll. On the commercial side, the Black Album was a massive hit at the time, catapulting Metallica to full-fledged superstardom with over 17 million copies sold in the U.S. and 35 million copies sold worldwide. It went to number one in Canada, certifying diamond status, a rarity with over a million units sold. Here's Kirk on the album's success. I didn't expect this album to do what it, what it did. and I didn't expect the impact that it would have on, on a lot of people. It, it just started rolling when it, when it came out and just kept on rolling and rolling and rolling. We went out on tour and the tour dates kept on coming and coming and coming. And you know, because the album was such a big international hit, we were able to go to all these places and play for all these people because the demand was there. It became the tour that would not end. It seemed like every time you'd say, well, that's enough, you'd go, yes, but since we played here, we sold another two and a half million. And even if we only play for the fans out of that number who want to come and see you, it's still enough to do these big shows. So it went on and on and on and on. I don't remember how many dates they played. I had 300 or so around the world on that one. Yeah, it's huge. For you know a couple years in a row, we were touring and together and 
close spaces and a lot of uh, a lot of money was flowing then a lot of people were coming around and I think that we all got caught up in the rock star thing. That's Jason Newstead and before that just after Kirk that was Metallica manager Peter Minch. What's even more remarkable about the Black Album is its staying power. The record continues to outsell major new releases every week and stands as one of the best-selling albums of all time of any genre. Charlie Benante of Anthrax said it was like your older brother went to college and became Bill Gates. He said no longer was there really the big four. Metallica was this thing unto itself. They were this huge entity when they have a record like the Black Album, when something is like Back in Black or Dark Side of the Moon, that's it. That's it. You know, goodbye. You don't need anything else. Looking back now on the success of Metallica's Black Album, here's what the band members, management, journalists, and starting with Bob Rock, the producer, had to say about it. Looking back on it, it was just a lot of a lot of work. And when I listen to the tapes now, I just hear I hear the hours and the time, and just I hear all the the conflicts. I resented Bob Rock. I mean, me and Bob Rock did not speak for like the first year or something after that record was made. I mean, it was it was it was ugly, nasty. I mean, I've, I've never made a record that was that difficult to make. And it wasn't until a couple years later. I mean, when I finished making that record, the Black Album, when I never wanted to see him again. And um, then something strange happened about a year or two after that where we became friends, like really friends. And then it was all cool and it's been great since then and I could never right now imagine making records with anybody else. It just came from a place that was obviously very magical. You just can't argue with the songs. And you know what's amazing is that it keeps on going. To this day the Black Album sells you know right around a million copies a year. It's our dark side of the moon. There were a lot of planets aligning. It was the right songs with the right new producer, with the right new attitude, with the right new recording approach, with the right timing. For us, it was a long, slow build, and we built up a family that cared about us and not weren't there just for the trend or fad, you know? We had built it up, and it felt good to, to get the recognition with the Black Album. To have one record like that in your career is amazing. It's really amazing. And now, on the 30th anniversary of its release, Metallica's self-titled fifth album, known to fans as the Black Album, becomes the latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.